Welcome to a mildly profane edition of the Best of Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, NPR, This American Life, The Onion Radio News, and Marin vs. Cedar. telling you about the 25 million dollars that Peter Krauss, a Merrill Lynch executive, got for just three months of pay. How did the board ever think that that made any degree of sense? And then Merrill Lynch goes under and then they take 25 billion dollar bailout from the United States taxpayer. God, those boards are so corrupt. There, It's sickening. Yet yeah, so those guys were like, oh yeah, yeah, having this guy around for three months for 25 million dollars when we're out of money. Yeah, 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 I can sign off on that. That makes sense. Now, I was reading about some other guy who uh, was making $25 million a year at AIG, another company that had to get bailed out for hundreds of billions of dollars. An unreal amount of money we put into AIG. Well, he's one of the guys that was running these scams and, uh, you know, was doing these risky credit default swaps that were bound to blow up. But before they blew up, they were making a lot of money. So he got paid $25 million a year, year after year after year. You see, he pocketed all that money. That money's gone into his house now. And then they come and ask us for a bailout. Well, how do I get that money back? Well, you can't. Sad day for you. Meanwhile, NBC had a great report. You know, unfortunately, we don't have enough time for it here. We'll run into the postgame show on theyoungturks.com. But... Let me tell you some of the stats from it. Meanwhile, people are literally choosing between food and medicine here in the United States. Real American families. And some people are diabetic, and they say, well, I don't have enough money uh, for the medicine, so I'm only taking it on half the days. And a guy gets taken to the hospital. Here's a stat. Nearly half, 47% of the public reports that someone in their family is skipping pills, postponing, or cutting back on medical care. They said that they needed in the past year due to the cost of care. So half the country doesn't have enough money for their medicine, and they wind up literally getting sick and going to the hospital, which then, of course, costs us even more money. But they don't have the money for it. Meanwhile, the Peter Krafts of the world are buying $37 million apartments in New York City. Man, I see stories like that, and I think, somebody hand me a pitchfork. You know, I don't know how we get that money back. And now they tell us, hey, but we can't give you health care. We can't give you any of the things that you need. We can't give you new infrastructure. We can't give you new bridges because we had to give it all to the guys who already stole it. Man, there's something wrong with this system. we got to find out exactly what it is, and we got to make sure it doesn't happen again. Not on our watch.
people who are self-employed are falling through a hole in the system as more Americans lose their jobs. Almost two-thirds of all people who are out of work do not qualify for unemployment benefits, and that includes the self-employed. NPR's Kathy Lohr has that story. Most people believe if they're laid off, downsized, or simply out of a job, they will get unemployment insurance benefits. While each state has different guidelines on the amount paid and the length of time people can receive benefits, the federal system created in 1935 simply does not cover the majority of today's workers. The largest group of people that do not qualify for unemployment insurance are the non-traditional employees. Howard Rosen is a labor market expert with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He says millions who are not full-time permanent employees are out of luck. There's been a kind of a growing number of people who are either consultants, self-employed, temporary employees, part-time employees, a whole plethora of different kinds of arrangements. These people are not currently eligible for assistance. Among this group, Barbara and Gary Ratner. He just received a PhD in biochemistry from Emory University. Barbara has been a self-employed Employed architectural illustrator since 1990 when she was laid off from a company here in Atlanta. And I actually uh, never had to worry about work. The phone just kept ringing. It was it was like magic. Not even during the rece- the very recession in which she was laid off did she suffer for lack of work. Ratner had so much work she didn't apply for unemployment benefits back then. Now, because she's self-employed, she doesn't qualify for them. She says business began slowing down last spring, and by December, Ratner finished her last job. I'm beginning to identify with the frog in the pan of water where someone turned the heat up, and I, you know, it took me a while to realize that, yes, this, this isn't like it has been before and I don't know where it's going. We talked at the couple's cozy dining table in their Depression-era home, where they've lived for more than 20 years. Barbara, who usually makes between eighty dollars and $100,000 a year, then showed me her office and her handmade drawings. These are the latest set of watercolors. I changed my palette a lot. I'm constantly looking for new combinations. Barbara Ratner has created architectural drawings for some big projects, including Atlanta's Olympics, a financial center in Taiwan, retail shops in China, even the L.A. and Portland zoos. Now that new construction has slowed dramatically, there's no demand for her drawings. This couple has already pulled nearly $10,000 out of their retirement account. They're cutting back where they can, eliminating a phone line and canceling memberships to civic groups. Gary decided to retire late last year, and because they're in their 60s and do not have a group health plan, the couple pays $1,500 a month for health insurance. Um, I've actually been considering getting rid of the medical insurance. It's huge, and so if we wanted to gamble, we could just drop the health insurance. The couple is using their retirement savings now, and that worries them. As we talk about the future, the Ratner's giant red Doberman, Rudy, gets restless, so Barbara feeds him. I guess you see who runs the house here. The couple is looking for creative ways to get by. 
and Barbara says she's seriously considering raising chickens in her backyard, like her parents did way back when. They lived through the Depression, and my father always felt like his family basically did better than other families because they had a chicken coop and they had a big garden and they, you know, they lasted it out. Gary Ratner is hoping to get a biochemistry fellowship. Barbara continues to look for work. Both hope that President Barack Obama's economic plan will create new jobs and ultimately turn the economy around. It's a sin that somehow light is changing to shadow and costing shroud over I just want to say something about the new boss in Washington, D.C., Barack Obama. And before I say this, I want to be absolutely clear with you that what you are about to hear is not the viewpoint of this public radio station, a public radio international, national public radio, or anybody else in public radio, but the staff of This American Life. Okay? This is something that came up at one of our editorial meetings, and it is now the official editorial policy of This American Life when it comes to the Obama presidency. Don't force him to quit smoking. Our senior producer, Julie Snyder, agreed to come into the studio to discuss this. The smoking is his one flaw. His Basically, the one sort of release valve that he has of being not perfect and not always in control and not totally responsible. Let, let the guy have, like, one moment where he doesn't have to be on stage in his life. And, and so controlled and so responsible. He If he doesn't have this, if we... If we shut down this, then I'm afraid he's going to have an affair. And that's horrible and awful. You know, you would hate him, I would hate him. Everyone would hate him. Justifiably so. <laughs> <laughs> you think that that's where it goes? Yeah. And I know everyone's all like, oh, but, you know, oh, he and Michelle, and they bring romance back to the White House, and they love each other so much. I totally agree. I don't think that he would have an affair because he's unhappy. I don't think it would have anything to do with Michelle. He would just have an affair because he needs, like, the one vice that reminds him that he is not superhuman and that he's not always just, like, the president, you know? And it's not like—and it's not like— um He'd ever let himself be photographed smoking, too. That's, like, the thing. I know. Totally. Like, because I know everyone, oh, he's, like, a role model and stuff like that. Like, the guy's, like, hardly going to be, like, boozing it up and smoking in pictures and stuff. There's no way he's going to be caught smoking. Joey Snyder is the senior producer of our program. And this brings us to Act 4 of our program. Act 4, the $15 trillion dismal science project. 
Of course, a new boss comes in with a new plan for how things should be run, and one of the big parts of Barack Obama's new plan is the economic stimulus package that was passed in the House this week. It's going to be debated next week in the Senate. He's been talking about the stimulus a lot. Thank you. Thank you. This is from the big speech he gave a couple weeks ago where he explained the economic package. The House's version would cost the government over $800 billion, $800 billion of spending and tax cuts that Barack Obama says is the only thing that can help our economy right now. It is true that we cannot depend on government alone to create jobs or long-term growth. But at this particular moment, only government can provide the short-term boost necessary to lift us from a recession this deep and severe. Only government can break the cycle that are crippling our economy, where a lack of spending leads to lost jobs, which leads to even less spending, where an inability to lend and borrow stops growth and leads to even less credit. This plan would rebuild roads and bridges, double the production of alternative energy, expand access to the Internet, and do all kinds of other things. It's a plan that represents not just new policy, but a whole new approach to meeting our most urgent challenges. In fact, for if much of the president's plan comes straight out of a very old playbook, a playbook developed before World War II, in fact, in the depths of the Great Depression, by a foul-mouthed, slutty British elitist who was called arrogant, supercilious, unbearably boorish, and that's by his friends. His enemies, man, they really hated him. He's one of the great economists of the 20th century, and you've probably heard his name, John Maynard Keynes the team that uh, brings us our economic stories here on This American Life. That's our producer, Alex Bloomberg, and NPR economics correspondent, Adam Davidson, have this story about him and his playbook. Keynes published his big theory, the theory underpinning President Obama's fiscal stimulus, in 1936. And many would argue that 73-year-old theory is being tested right now for the very first time. And Adam, you've been carrying around Keynes's thousand-page biography for weeks now, getting ready for this story. Yeah, it's the abridged version, I should tell you. <laughs> yeah, it's huge. Um, it's by this guy, Lord Robert Skidelsky, and it is such a great read because Keynes, Keynes is totally fascinating. Every few pages, I'm flipping between thinking he's an amazing, charming genius and then that he's a narrow-minded jerk. I keep thinking that there are at least two movies you could make about Keynes. In one, you'd see Keynes as the statesman advising presidents and prime ministers and furiously writing up these papers that change the direction of modern intellectual thought. I can see the montage right now. The paper writing montage. Yeah, the paper writing montage. <laughs> it's exciting. And, and, and then you zoom in on him coming up with the plan that some say saved the free world from communist takeover after World War II. So, so that's one movie you could make. Another movie would pretty much be a gay porno. <laughs> well, uh, why don't you tell us more about that one then? He ran with the Bloomsbury group, you know, like Virginia Woolf and all those painters and poets. They were into free love and raunchy language, and they used to complain in letters to each other that Keynes was just way too dirty for them. Uh, so he was out there. In the early 1900s, he was an openly gay figure. He would take his boyfriends to fancy dinner parties. People referred to them as married. And then suddenly in 1925, after sleeping with a lot of his students at Cambridge and many other men in the Bloomsbury orbit, he married a woman and was, by all accounts, quite happy with her and faithful. You get the sense of a guy who did and said whatever he wanted. 
And and that's just as true in his economics as in his private life. He loved hurling himself on the public stage with all these shocking, outrageous opinions. And the opinions were all over the place. Sometimes he's almost a socialist. Then he's fanatically defending free markets. Reading Keynes is kind of like reading the Bible. You could probably find a passage written sometime that justifies just about any position. But there is this common thread in what he wrote. Sort of a, an elitist common thread. Yes, he generally felt that almost any problem could be solved by getting together a bunch of young men who had gone to Cambridge and asking them to run things. Every once in a while, he might be okay with an Oxford man, but really, Cambridge was best. He even wanted Cambridge men to run America. He didn't think anyone in the U.S. was smart enough. He also, by the way, didn't like Jews, the French, the working class. Yeah, and he had the sense that these Cambridge-led government boards should sort of run everything from individual companies to determining how many babies should be born, and, he wrote cryptically, of what quality. He was, after all, on the board of directors of the British Eugenics Society. So, here we are in modern-day America, millions of working men and women in peril, and this is the guy we're turning to? A bigoted America-phobe who hates working men and women? Well, yes. Uh, and it's all because of this book he wrote in the 1930s, his prescription for how to get out of a global depression. It was his masterpiece, published in 1936, The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money. I've read The General Theory about five times, I would guess. I think the first time I read it, I was maybe 18. Tyler Cowan is an economist at George Mason University, and he's been very publicly reading Keynes's masterwork again, this time writing notes and conducting a discussion on his blog, Marginal Revolution. He says it's no easier the sixth time around. Here is a sample sentence. But it is a grave objection to this definition for such a purpose that the community's output of goods and services is a non-homogeneous complex which cannot be measured, strictly speaking, except in certain special cases, as, for example, when all the items of one output are included in the same proportions in another output. And that's without looking. That was a purely random passage. <laughs> and that was like page what? That was page 38. Uh -huh. Yes, yeah, so it's hard to imagine too many people getting to page 39. <laughs> If you do make it through the general theory, you learn that Keynes was correcting what he saw as a fundamental error in the economics that had come before. Under classical economics, if there's a downturn, the economy will sort itself out. If people aren't buying enough, prices will drop to where people start spending. Keynes's radical insight was to look out the window in the 1930s and see that sometimes things don't right themselves. And the economy goes into a downward spiral. Everything just gets worse and worse. And it looked in the 1930s as if that's what were, was happening, and to some extent it was. A failure of effective demand, he called it. This is another economist, Alan Blinder at Princeton, who was an economic advisor to President Clinton. A failure of effective demand, he says, is basically that people aren't spending enough money. Maybe they don't have any, or they got laid off, or they're afraid they're going to get laid off. And if people aren't spending enough money, there's no way for the economy to automatically adjust. And in the 1930s, nobody else had figured out how to get people spending again. The Keynesian prescription is if all else fails, the government can spend the money. So normally we don't say in a, in a free market economy, well, the government. We say, well, people and businesses. Uh, should do it. But Keynes' uh, idea, which was revolutionary at the time, is if, if the private sector won't do it, then the public sector can do it as a fill-in, stopgap. 
Blinder, like lots of Keynesians, says that's basically what happened. Government spending got us out of the Depression, but not in the way we learned in school. You know, I learned that FDR, inspired by Keynes, spent his way out of the Depression. FDR did expand government spending. He started the WPA and the Tennessee Valley Authority and a whole alphabet soup of other programs. But he never spent as much money as Keynes said he should have. And he did all sorts of things that Keynes opposed, like raising taxes and trying to balance the budget, which Keynes said would just cancel out any positive effect from the spending. FDR sort of drove Keynes crazy, actually, and prompted at least one scolding letter. But then geopolitical events took over and forced FDR to spend as much money as Keynes wanted. The the huge dose of uh, massive Keynesian stimulus came in the uh, in the uh, build up to World War II. We started spending titanic amounts of money. And was the way we ended the depression Keynesian? Was it was it? Yeah, it was Keynesian, but it was not for that reason. I mean, it was to fight Hitler and to fight Tojo. Uh, but it was Keynesian. Keynes had a heart attack and died in early 1946, which left economists to basically fight over his ideas right through today. One of the first fights, did Keynes get us out of the Depression? On one side, people like Alan Blinder, who still believes that a Keynesian dose of massive military spending did the job. On the other side, folks like Tyler Cowen. I don't agree with that at all. World War II was a time of economic misery. There was low consumption. There was rationing. Uh, Times were tough. It was a continuation of the Great Depression. The numbers for GDP were high because we were making tanks, but it didn't make people better off. And unemployment was low because people were fighting a war. But they were being killed. It was terrible. So the numbers are in a way phony, even though they look good. So in that sense, the war made the Depression worse. In terms of standard of living. In terms of real standard of living. automated operators. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. More grim economic news today with the announcement that telecommunications giant AT&T will lay off 30,000 automated phone operators as part of a sweeping cost-cutting measure. Automated phone operator 555-127-8988 had this to say. If you know the extension of the party you are trying to reach, you may dial it now or press pound for a dial-by-name directory. Late last year, AT&T replaced its entire overseas technical support group with millions of untrained crickets. Doyle Redland for The Onion, Radio News. If you want to find yourself by traveling out west, or if you want to find somebody else that's better, go ahead. 
Back in the 1940s, nobody was listening to that argument. For about 30 years after World War II, Keynesianism was mainstream economic theory. But during that time, Keynes's theory morphed into something that Keynes himself wouldn't have recognized. Keynes's mantra was always uncertainty, what he once called the dark forces of time and ignorance which envelop our future. But his disciples came to believe that his theories could be used in a much more precise way to control the economy than Keynes ever believed. So Keynes' disciples thought, if the economy needs a little boost, you cut just enough taxes and increase just enough spending. If the economy is heating up, you do the opposite. You raise taxes by a couple percentage points and cut government spending. Alan Blinder, the Keynesian economist at Princeton, says that there was a triumphant sense among Keynesians that by carefully tweaking taxes and spending this way, they could overcome booms and busts. They could permanently eliminate recessions. There was a view that developed in the 1960s and developed excessively, one must admit in retrospect, that we could steer the national economy pretty well, not perfectly, but pretty well. If you pick up Walter Heller's book that was written in the 1960s, Walter Heller was the head of the Council of Economic Advisors for Kennedy. The amount of optimism exuded there is, seems almost laughable. This is a watch we were pa- repairing. One way the economy is not like a watch, when you repair a watch, politicians aren't involved. Politicians took the Keynesian message that government spending can be good, and they kind of went nuts. They paid for the war on poverty, the Vietnam War, they sent a man to the moon, all the time running up the federal deficit, convinced that Keynes gave them a free pass. For Keynesians, this is always a problem. Prescribing Keynesianism to some politicians is like prescribing crack to a coke addict. They like it a little too much. And in the 1970s, the patient hit rock bottom. We had high unemployment, and the Keynesian solution stopped working. We spent and spent, and unemployment got worse, and we got inflation, something Keynesians had no answer for. After that, it was the Keynesians' turn to walk in the wilderness. When I took macroeconomics in the 1980s and early 1990s, the textbooks uh, ex- explained the basic Keynesian system, that, but then spent a few chapters showing why the Keynesian system did not work. This is economist Chris Edwards with the avowedly anti-Keynesian Cato Institute, a think tank founded in 1977 near Keynesianism's lowest point. I thought the debate was settled uh, in the 80s, and I thought we all agreed uh, that Keynesianism doesn't work. Uh, But uh, now, with the new stimulus package before Congress, uh, all these Keynesians have come out of the woodwork. Did you know there were Keynesians around? (laughs) Sure, but I thought the sort of kindergarten Keynesianism, as I call it, the simple idea that the government could spend more money to grow the economy... I thought that really sort of simple Keynesian idea had died in the 1970s, but I was wrong. Edwards is part of the school of thought that replaced Keynesianism. There are a bunch of different groups in this school, the monetarists, the Chicago School, supply-side economics. And they use a different set of tools to steer the economy than the Keynesians. The Keynesians, remember, like to use taxes and government deficits. These anti-Keynesians said never use those tools. All you have to do is have the central bank, the Fed, carefully control interest rates. If the economy overheats, raise rates. If it starts to sputter, lower them. 
From NPR News in Washington, I'm... This is why you've heard so many newscasts in the last two decades about Alan Greenspan or Ben Bernanke raising or lowering interest rates. The central bank raised its federal funds rate by half a point. The Federal Reserve Board's interest rate-setting arm announced a quarter of a percent cut in a key overnight bank lending rate today. The The Federal Reserve raised the short-term interest rate today by a quarter percentage point to 4.75%. The Keynesians and anti-Keynesians fought some bitter battles through the 1980s. But by the Clinton administration, most economists agreed on the basics. Some of Keynes' ideas are useful, but we're in a post-Keynesian world. The interest rate is the tool we use. This view held pretty much until exactly one month ago, December 16, 2008, to be precise. There was a surprise move at the Federal Reserve today. The Fed was expected to cut interest rates by a half point. Instead, the Fed cut the key lending rate by as much as a full point to zero. That's the lowest federal funds rate on record. That's the day the Fed tried to stabilize the economy by lowering interest rates all the way down to zero percent. It can't go lower, but the economy kept getting worse. Their main tool seemed to have stopped working. So economists and policymakers started looking around for some other way to fix things. And they found that there's one guy in particular who'd given a lot of thought about how to get out of a situation like this. Okay, so here's the way Keynes would have done it. So you measure here uh, output. We're in Alan Blinder's office at Princeton, which conveniently has a blackboard. And he's up there applying Keynes' formula. It's pretty straightforward for how to get out of a mess like the one we're in. You start with some estimates. First, you guess what the economy would be producing if all the people and factories and businesses were working at full capacity. Blinder's guess? That's around $15 trillion. And then you look at what the economy is actually producing. Let's put that at $14 trillion. So do you, do you know those numbers? You on don't know any of these numbers. You estimate all of them. Okay. So the economy should be producing $15 trillion, but it's only producing $14 trillion. There's a trillion-dollar shortfall. So the theory says that if the government spends money or gives us money to spend through tax cuts, that will increase everybody's spending and get the economy back to where it should be. The government doesn't have to spend the whole trillion-dollar shortfall, though, because of something called the Keynesian multiplier. Every dollar the government spends produces more than a dollar in spending throughout the economy. If they pay you to build a bridge, you spend your paycheck on rent and food and so on, and then those people have money to spend on other stuff. So, according to Keynes, there's a clear answer to how much Mr. Obama's administration should spend. To raise the GDP by a trillion. Suppose your multiplier was around one and a half. So that would lead you to conclude that you needed about 650 billion as a stimulus. Voila. That's the kind of number they're talking about right now. You see it in the newspapers every day, a number in that range. Have you done this more rigorously for yourself? I've not, but I hope they have. Right now, a lot of economists are supporting the idea of a stimulus package. There are people you'd expect, like Paul Krugman, a proud Keynesian at the New York Times. And there are some surprises, like President Reagan's chief economic advisor, Martin Feldstein. When I talk to economists, I find a lot are in the middle, not convinced it'll work, but in the absence of anything else, they figure, let's give it a try. But the frightening thing about a stimulus package is that no matter which economists you talk to, the ones who want a Keynesian stimulus and the ones who think it's the worst idea ever are looking at exactly the same data. They're just coming to utterly opposite conclusions about it. 
This, even economists like Alan Blinder will tell you, is the problem with economics. The biggest problem with learning things in economics is the inability to do controlled experiments. So we don't have, unlike what is the case in many but not all sciences, the definitive experiment, right? This experiment they did in the 1920s proved that Einstein was right about the perturbation of mercury. It proved it. We can never do that in economics. The best you can have is a really good theory. The best you can have is a real good theory. It's not going to work perfectly all in a textbook manner uh, all the time. For Tyler Cowen, though, this is about as good as it gets for testing Keynes's theory. Remember, he, like a lot of anti-Keynesians, doesn't think Keynes got us out of the Depression. He doesn't support Barack Obama's stimulus plan. He thinks Keynes was probably wrong. But if we do the stimulus and the economy quickly recovers... That would prove that Blinder is right and I am wrong. Definitively. Well, no test is definitive, but it would be strong evidence. If the, if we spend $700 billion and the economy recovers within a year, year and a half, I would take that as serious evidence that my view is wrong. I don't think it will happen, but I would take it seriously. So, so this just happens to be just the elements that have come together right now have just accidentally created the perfect conditions for this test. Near perfect. I view this if we decide to, as the first test of Keynesian fiscal policy as a formula for getting out of a depression. The very first test. It's one reason why I don't want to do it, because in my opinion, the idea is untested. So to spend, say, a trillion dollars on an untested idea, in my view, is a mistake. There are lots of economists who think a Keynesian stimulus would be a mistake for all sorts of reasons. Some say you don't need a stimulus to fix the recession because a recession isn't a disease that needs a cure. It is the cure. A recession brings down prices from a falsely inflated high. A recession is what makes houses affordable again. Others say a stimulus package might end the recession, but then we'll have worse problems later on. Vicious inflation, a bigger, less efficient government, and a trillion more dollars in debt to pay off. The Obama administration is betting that none of this will happen. They're trusting a different theory. They're trusting Keynes. intercepted, if you will. Uh, we have not done it. Huffington Post has. Uh, from CEOs uh, that got together and had a conference call before the elections, these set of elections. It happened on October 17th, including uh, some of the executives at Bank of America, which has received $45 billion, I believe, in bailout money. They've all received so much, it's hard to keep track. AIG, which has received even more. Their executives were on the line as well. 
Uh, and uh, Bernie Marcus and Rick Berman were the ones pretty much leading this call. Bernie Marcus is the former uh, head of Home Depot, and he is apparently virulently anti-union, anti-Democrat. Uh, and Rick Berman is the head of an organization that uh, organizes against unions. And what they uh, were so worked up about were, was this new Employee Free Choice Act, where the unions would get to either have a secret election or... Uh, write-in ballots uh, to decide whether a, a shop or a workplace could be unionized. And they find this outrageous because it will lead to uh, more money for actual uh, wage earners, to the people who actually do the jobs at these companies. In fact, in one of the Bank of America memos, it says, well, one of the few upsides of this is that uh, people at the lower incomes will have more money to spend and to invest in Bank of America, to bring to Bank of America. So they get it. They, they realize lower-income people would get more money this way, and you'd have more wage equality. That's why they hate it, right? And you're going to get a sense of how much they hate it uh, when uh, you listen to some of the tapes, especially the comments of Bernie Marcus uh, and then later Rick Berman. And we have the tapes for you. We're going to play it for you right now, right off the bat. And uh, the other thing that I want you to take note of here is how much they hate the Democrats. Well, in one of the... Uh, Quotes here. I don't know if it's on one of the tapes or if I read it in the transcript. Uh, Bernie Marcus says, we got to get money to Norm Coleman right away and to all the Republicans in tight seats because these Democrats are going to be the death of us. They're going to try to equalize wages. How dare they, right? Try to get the lower income and middle income more money. You know what Marcus says at one point? He says, I could be on a 350-foot yacht right now in the Mediterranean, but I came in here for this fight because I think it's that important. Wow, thank you for coming off your 350-foot yeah, yacht off the Mediterranean. God, it makes my blood boil. And look, here's what you don't get, and part of what these tapes tell you. These guys are at a war with you. They, their aim is to keep their 350-feet yachts. And their aim is to keep all the damn money in their hands. Okay. And they don't want the lower income and the middle income people to have more wages. That's why they want to kill this union bill, and they want to fight against every single Democrat. Uh, you know, you read the whole transcript, as I did, and you listen to some portions of the tape we're going to play for you, and you get a sense of, you know what? If you're not a multimillionaire, you would have to be mental to vote for a Republican. You know, Bernie Marcus says the same thing to the CEOs. He says, you've got to be crazy to vote for Democrats. Don't you see? They're trying to actually help other people that aren't CEOs. All right, let's start to listen in. First one is how, according to Bernie Marcus, again, the former head of uh, Home Depot, uh, how uh, this is going to be the end of civilization if the Democrats win and the unions win. Let's listen. To pay for the programs that they're going to put in, they're going to have to get the money somewhere, and the unions will go after anybody who works for a living and makes a living. There's no question about it. That Joe the plumber, whatever the hell he does for a living, is going to, is going to pay for this in the future along with everybody else. Sure. Corporate taxes will go up along with everything else. And this is the, this is the demise of a civilization. This is how a civilization disappears. I'm, I'm sitting here as an elder statesman, and I'm watching this happen, and I don't believe it. The end of civilization. By the way, you know, we just, uh, well, as, while we were paying, playing that uh, tape for you, we showed a, a video clip of him on CNBC, right? 
uh, he says at different portions of the transcript, which I don't believe are on the tapes, look, CNBC uh, gave me, uh, you know, two hours to talk about this. You know, they did their job. Oh, they did. Look, the media, the other guys, they help you a lot. You know, they put these guys on as if they're like legitimate, unbiased people. Oh, the distinguished CEO. What do you have to say? Oh, surprisingly, you want all the money in your hands. Well, let's give you two hours for it. All right, now I want to go to clip number two. Uh, if a retailer has not gotten involved, apparently uh, they should be shot. You think I'm exaggerating? Listen to the tape. And while the consequences to the business community will be huge, individuals don't see it as a big deal until they're actually subject to it. And the business community has not, as Bernie has said. They have either run from this or they haven't been informed about it. And the unions, as opposed to years ago when they tried to do this, the unions made a very big deal about this and there was a major fight. Today, the unions have been very quiet about it and the business community doesn't tend to fight if there's nothing to fight against. And so without there being an offense put out front by the unions because they know they don't need to try and pass it, they only need to get the right number of legislators in place. If there's no big offense by the unions, then there's no defense by the business community. And what the business community needed was an offense of its own, and they've been very slow to find their voice and come to the table. Yeah, and what, what has happened is that there are organizations that they belong to, all of the, uh, the, uh, the retail associations, et cetera, et cetera, uh, have, have not been able to, to deal with this because they have so many members and they, they just, I, I don't know, it's politics as usual, bureaucracy, I don't have a clue. Death by committee. It's, it's death by committee. It's just incredible. Every single retailer, you, you're all retail analysts, if a retailer has not gotten involved with this, if he has not spent money on this election, if he has not sent money to Norm Coleman and all these other guys, should be shot should be thrown out of their goddamn jobs. If you haven't, if you're one of these executives at a retail company or you're a CEO and you haven't sent money to Norm Coleman and other Republicans, you ought to be thrown out of your job and shot, according to Bernie Mark, former co-founder of Home Depot. The man you heard first was Rick Berman. He's the head of a fun group called uh, Center for Union Facts, which of course does nothing but give you wrong facts and disinformation about unions. off 5,000 workers to impress his girlfriend. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. In a casual display of power today, CEO Carlton Lutz told his new girlfriend of his decision to lay off 5,000 workers just to prove that he can. Despite his company's record-breaking profits, Lutz believes letting go of 50% of his workforce could well make the right impression on his attractive new lover. I 
found that ladies are really turned on by a man who can destroy the hopes and dreams of loyal employees. At the time of this report, Lutz's girlfriend is holding out for an offer from General Motors CEO Rick Wagoner to revoke over 950,000 pensions pending the removal of her blouse. Doyle Redland for the like the summer all beauty and truth but in the morning I fled left a note and it read someday you will be loved I cannot pretend that I felt any regret cause each broken heart will eventually The attitude here on the phone, hosted by Bank of America, they're at war. They feel like they're at war. And, you know, do you know it? I mean, the unions know it, but do you know it? You don't know it. They, they've started this war against you, and you have no idea. They get together in their conference call, and they talk about how they're going to take this thing down to make sure you don't get higher wages. And that if any CEO doesn't go along, according to Bernie Marcus, he should be shot. Now, do I believe he literally means shot? I hope not. No, I don't believe that. But you can tell how upset he is by his choice of language. All right. And uh, now we're going to uh, go on to the third Bernie Marcus clip, uh, how angry he is at these CEOs for not uh, being on the war path like he is. As I've been saying in the media, uh, it hasn't appeared anywhere. Uh, CNN, CN, NBC. Uh, the only, I was on Squawk Box three times already. I will tell you, CNBC gave me two hours on the Squawk Box, and I, I had I had more time on the Squawk Box than trying to trying to get CEOs to understand this. And so far, uh, you know, some of them have 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 come out of their deep sleep. Uh, most of them have not come out of their deep sleep. We we we've had companies where. Uh, the, the council, the corporate council, have said, oh, th this, this really is not going to affect us. Um, you're, you're not going to hear about this. Uh, hopefully, calls like this will, will stir up the pot, and calls like this where I hope that you will call your, 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 your people that you cover and say, what are you doing about this? You know, I, I'm going to bring up a point that, that I, if I, you know, I, as a shareholder, if I knew the CEO of a company wasn't doing anything on something that was going to have a dramatic effect on my business, I'd sue the son of a bitch. I really would sue him. There actually may be lawsuits after this is over. Well, you know what? I'm going to join in the lawsuits. I'm so angry at, the, at some of these CEOs, I can't even believe the stupidity that's involved here. This is, this is, this is as important as anything that's ever happened to these companies. And, and they're not reacting and they're not fighting. And I, I, the old-time fighters are gone. But there are guys out there, by the way, I want you to know, that goes, doesn't go across the board. There are people out there that are very quietly doing a lot of stuff a lot of things, and, and they're all afraid. They're afraid of the unions. They're afraid of the trial lawyers. The truth is that there are ways to give money through C4s and C6s to educate the public to this. If the public knew about it, by the way, the statistics are that almost 80% of the public doesn't like this law. Okay, that last statistic was totally made up. 
Uh, now, but do you understand what he was saying there at the end? There's ways to educate the public. What we do is we put money in these C4s and C6s, which are tax brackets, and we try to brainwash the American public into thinking, hey, we're doing them a favor by making sure they can't get higher wages. Aren't we so sweet? He says, oh, I remember the old fighters, the old robber barons. Oh, there's still a couple of us left. But these days, some CEOs are soft and care about uh, their workers. Now, I don't believe that anyway, <laughs> okay? I don't know where those soft CEOs are, but in his mind, uh, you know, they are. He said earlier in the call that he took a tranquilizer that morning to calm down. Apparently it didn't work because he's still talking about getting shooting people and how there are no fighters left, etc., and, uh, and funneling money to the Republicans one way or another, either directly or if you're tapped out in another part of the call, they explain what you could do is you could donate through other means, like you could donate to Rick Berman's organization, which then funnels the money one way or another to the Republicans. When Rick Berman was asked to comment on this, he said, no, funneling the money to the Republicans, well, no, we like the Republicans and we agree with them generally, but us funnel money, no, 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 we're just advocating on behalf of issues, which they are to some degree and they got a right as Americans to do. But are they also funneling the money to Republicans? Of course! Of course they are. And remember, this call is happening right before the election, October 17th, to try to mobilize all these guys into voting for Republicans. And that is, you know, and then right after the election, they lose, the, de the Democrats win in large part, and then they go and beg the Democrats, oh, more bailout money, give me more bailout money. And Bank of America does, AIG does, and they get it. And they get it. And by the way, the conference call also happened uh, three days after Bank of America had already received uh, the correct numbers, $25 billion. $25 billion, and they turn around and say, all right, like, now how do we screw up? All right, now finally, uh, Rick Berman, uh, the head of the anti-union uh, organization, is going to give you one more uh, clip here about how you got to make sure to go after the Democrats. My concern, as is Bernie's, we have, we have two websites out there if, if some of you want to get more information. One of them is unionfacts.com. The other is employeefreedom.org. Uh, we have worked with a lot of companies in trying to get this message out. And I agree with Bernie that if there are not enough Republicans operating at the firewall, after this election, it is going to be very difficult to hold the line. The only way after these elections, if we don't have a filibuster-proof Senate, is to make this so hot for some Democrats. Mary Landrew from, from Louisiana would be one. Um, there, are, there is a possibility, and I would tell you it's a remote possibility, to make this issue so hot in some states that even a Democrat who was up for election in 2010 has to think twice about whether or not they're going to let this thing go by. But I'm not certain that, it, that it's doable. Um, this was an issue in 1978 in the Carter administration. The unions fought like hell to get this thing through. And I will tell you that it was the, mo it was the most contentious labor law fight in modern history in 1978. And they, and they came within one vote of getting it through the Senate. And they got blocked. And here we are 30 years later. You know, first of all, sorry about the poor sound quality of it. We, they just obviously they recorded the conversations and then Huffington Post got it in an exclusive, and and that's where we're getting it from. Uh, but did you understand what he's saying there? We got to turn up the heat on the Democrats. Now, how are they going to turn up the heat on the Democrats? They're going to spend a lot of money against them or threaten 
to spend a lot of money against them in their elections. And they say, hey, if you go along with us, if you go along to get along, then we won't spend the money against you and try to defeat you. But if you do, we're going to come to get you. Now, look, that's how lobbyists in America work. I get it, right? But at least you need to understand where they're coming from. The CEOs and the guys that are running these companies, they want to make sure that they can defeat every Democrat possible. They say, look, we barely dodged a bullet back in 1978 by one vote in the Senate. And those one votes matter so much. And what happened? You didn't get uh, the wage equality for the last 30 years? No. Yeah, it's been 30 years now. So maybe if they miss this vote by one vote, you're going to have to wait another 30 years. By the way, in the latest Obama bill, stimulus package, there's another $23.5 billion concession to corporations so they don't, you know, release their uh, lobbyist hounds to hound all these uh, politicians so they'll play ball. And now, you know, the Chamber of Commerce and some of the manufacturing organizations are saying, oh, you know, we, this stimulus package isn't so bad because they got their bribe. And this is how it goes around. And do you have your lobbyists? Who's, who's lobbying on your behalf for, for fair wages for you? I'll tell you what, if I'm a Democrat and I listen to these tapes, I think that, that's the biggest advertisement for the party you could find. Because they're so damn scared the Democrats are actually going to look out for the little guy. <laughs> and it, and I, I view myself as an independent, and i got to give the Democrats credit. Listening in on these CEO and executive and, and lobbyist conversations, you think, well, if you're a lower or middle class American and you're not one of these executives, you know which party's on your side and which party's against you. It is crystal clear because those guys know. The latest story of these is the Citibank uh, jet. They went out <clears throat> yesterday, it was reported that Citibank was buying a $50 million, now remember, they have $45 billion from us. $45 billion. Our money. Our $45 money. billion. They're, they're going to buy a $50 million jet. Are they going to buy it from an American company to put Americans to work? No. They're buying it from a French company. Uh, and Didn't Obama step in, though? Literally, didn't he step in? And then it's reported today that Obama, basically, the administration called him and said, are you people fucking retarded? What, what, what are you thinking? We just gave you uh, $45, 45 billion, billion, billion dollars, and you're spending a new $50 million on a jet for 12 people at a time? I mean, are you people, how fucking retarded are you people? And so they're going to stop. But, I mean, I think, you know, the, the point of these stories is not so much that, okay, good, they're not buying a $50 million jet. It's that 
These people are raping us of this money, and their attitude has not changed one iota. But you know, we you know what's spectacular, though, is that for the President of the United States, in, 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 in all honesty, in, in this action of actually calling Citibank's head and saying, what are you doing? That, I feel like my president represented us. I mean, literally, like, he literally called and said, hey, you can't spend our money like that. We didn't give you that money for that. Now, if he does that all the way down the line, I'd be happy. But whether he's going to do that, who knows? My problem is it's a little bit, it's a little bit window dressing. Let's get to the, uh, the right. heart of the matter. These people are thieves. They're thieves. All of them. They're thieves. They're thieves. They're doing it in a legal way, but they're, they're, it's thievery. What and and they, not only have they been doing it, and we'll talk about this in the post chat, about, about uh, the post chat, about Wall Street lobbying and, and the influence it had and still has uh, on, on, the, on the administration, on the executive uh, branch, and, and, and we'll see in the long run whether Obama really changes things. But let's clear some stuff up about the new stimulus package. All right, well, uh, the stimulus package is going to be voted on tomorrow in uh, the House. And uh, I think uh, later in the week in the Senate, it, 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 one of the biggest problems from my perspective yeah. is that it, it really, 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 really shorts mass transit in an inexplicable way. But uh, basically what you have is Obama has been trying to be bipartisan. Right. And so now the Democrats have stripped out of it um, help for states to provide family planning assistance. They have stripped out the mass transit. They've and increased the tax cuts but, but for let's, corporations. Let's talk for, for just for one second, tax cuts for corporations, family planning, and mass transit. These are sort of some of the, the, the foundations of what we would consider liberal governance. That, yeah. that, and, and, and these are the concessions that he's willing to make in, in, in trying to cross the aisle. And I don't know, you know, I don't know ultimately what's going to happen. But if they don't take this, and I don't think he should be offering this, I understand bipartisanship, but for fuck's sake. All right, well, we have, uh, to, make it, uh, to make it a little bit more uh, understandable and digestible as to what exactly is going on, we now present to you our uh, latest episode of Remedial Theater. I'm ready. Hello, uh, Republicans in Congress. I want to be bipartisan in passing the stimulus bill. Great. Uh, we're going to need more tax cuts for the rich and less things like stimulus. Okay. Your proposals weaken the ability of the stimulus to actually stimulate the economy, but in the spirit of bipartisanship, okay, deal. Great. Thank you, President Obama. Good news. We got everything we wanted in the stimulus bill. Great. Now we can vote against it. No kidding. And we can run against it in two years when it fails because of everything we got in it. America first. God bless it. Hey, fellow congressional Democrat, are we in the majority? Well, in the spirit of bipartisanship, are, are we? <laughs> There it is, folks. Um, the uh, once again, uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering. I, I just like at what point does anybody in the Obama administration say, "Hey, you know what? They're really fucking with us." Uh, and since we don't need their votes to pass this thing, why don't we just pass a bill that we actually think is going to work? Exactly. Why? I mean, I mean, all this stuff is it, it becomes more than just symbolic when you're making concessions in in, in an economic recession. Uh, on, on public transportation, and all the numbers are up, people need it now, and also on, on family planning for people who don't even have Medicare. 
that the, you know, dramatically poor people. I mean, those aren't concessions. Those aren't symbolic. Those and undercut it, liberal governance. And it also, uh, according to the Center for American Progress, would save $200 million by actually doing this because uh, of the way the states dole out this money. I so, really hope he doesn't continue this trajectory of trying to accommodate those, those I, I, I'm just completely befuddled. There's a story in the LA Times today about mass transit. Uh, ridership is up dramatically in the third quarter of 2008. It's the largest increase in, rider, in, in, in ridership All in, across the board. in 25 yeah. years. Across the board. Don, you know I loved you something like a drug. Don, I twist some Republicans in the business lobby, uh, Barack Obama is including a $23.8 billion in corporate tax breaks. Now, here's the thing. You can say, well, it's not just appeasing them. That also helps the economy. Except we almost know for a fact that it doesn't. It is structured in ways that it gets money to the corporations, but unfortunately, uh, they don't wind up spending it. How do we know? We already did a study on this. You know one of the guys who did the study? The number two man on the National Economic Advisors under Larry Summers. His name is uh, Jason Furman. And he had done the study, and he already knows that it, the companies don't take this money and pour it back into the economy and don't do extra investments. So it's a total waste. It doesn't help us or the economy at all. All it does is help the corporations and the people who run those corporations. So... And it's structured in a lot of different ways. One of the uh, little cute little tax breaks is, hey, if, uh, you've, uh, if you have losses now, which, of course, they have tremendous losses now. Why? Because they took all these inordinate risks. They say all the taxes that you paid from five years ago, all the way from five years ago till now, you could then petition the government to give them all back to you. Oh, look at all the losses I had on all the money I made there. Uh, so... Now, give me a big, fat check that we, we have to, you know, we're the government, you and I. We have to write them a check saying, oh, sorry, here's uh, uh, the money we took from you in taxes for the last five years. Now, the, the money they made, the CEOs and the executives, did they take that home? Oh, yeah, they did, right? That's in the $13 million mansion in Florida. That's in the yacht in the Mediterranean. That's on the private jets. It's the $15 million John Thane took home. Uh, when he first got on the Merrill Lynch, after he, you know, then he winds up sinking Merrill Lynch. So all that money's gone already, right? They already took it home. But now we're going to have to give them back the taxes they paid on it. Now, you see, this is the problem with Obama's let's all be conciliatory, postpartisan BS. I don't want to give away $24 billion of my money so that we could all hold hands and sing kumbaya. Why do I have to give my money away to these guys? I've given away 
far too much money already to them, and they already took it home. When it doesn't do a damn thing for the economy, and the Obama administration knows it doesn't do a damn thing for the economy. Oh, but we're going to be... Look, my God, man, you have 59 senators in the Senate, and you have an overwhelming majority in the House. Enough carrots. Time to use the stick. Come out there and say, look, you either vote with me or you're gone in 2010. I have a 77% approval rating. If you're not going to do that, how much more of our money are you going to give away to these Republicans and to their CEO lobbyist friends? Enough is enough. Because we are quite literally fighting for our lives, this can no longer be a political issue. This is our planet. This is our future. This is our children, our children's children. Don't accept anything but the clean, green way forward. Don't back down. Don't back down. We are gearing up to bring more than 10,000 young people to Washington, D.C., February 27th through March 2nd for Power Shift 2009. Over the course of four days, participants will have the opportunity to hear from some of the nation's leading experts on climate change and energy. They'll be able to engage in trainings on advocacy, grassroots organizing, We'll hear from keynote speakers like Van Jones and Majora Carter about the opportunities the new green economy presents. And on Monday, March 2nd, we will gather on the West Lawn of the United States Capitol, and we will participate in the largest single lobby day on climate change that our nation has ever seen. As young people flood the halls of Congress, we will make sure it is abundantly clear that this nation is ready to embark on the next chapter uh, in our country's existence, the next chapter of a clean and green and just energy future. We're coming to Washington, D.C. from every corner of this uh, nation to make sure that the Congress is with us in understanding what a top-tier priority addressing climate change is. Because the revolution starts right now. The revolution has started right now. Thanks for listening, everybody. So what you just heard was a promo for something called Power Shift 2009. This is a follow-up event to what happened at the very end of 2007, aptly named Power Shift 2007, which was an amazing experience. I was there for it, even had the opportunity to help organize for it just a little bit. And the concept behind these big conferences is all about changing the political dynamics around climate change and also the way we get our energy. And so the name power shift refers not only to shifting away from the old dirty sources of energy, but also the shifting power in Washington and using that to change the way we do things. So this whole event is targeted towards high school and college age students, anyone, anyone who considers themselves America's youth, and is all about bringing them to Washington, D.C. for this conference to, to be inspired, educated, empowered, and take all of that energy and actually 
turn it towards Capitol Hill, lobby the Congress while they're here, and then go back, all the students go back to their own areas and take what they've learned and apply it where they are and do what they can in, in terms of organizing for climate change and clean energy future. So if you consider yourself in that uh, very broad category of America's youth, you should definitely come to this. And I, I mean that absolutely literally, not like you need a special invitation to come. Everybody and all of their friends should come to this event. If you don't consider yourself part of the youth, there's still ways that you can help support the movement. See, this event is, is so big and so elaborate that we need hundreds and hundreds of volunteers to help just run the event. But if all of the volunteers are students and, and other and young people, then those people volunteering may actually miss out on the educational side of things and they'll be doing uh, just a lot of the logistics. So we're actually asking that a lot of people not necessarily part of the, the youth movement on college campuses and whatnot, especially if you live in the Washington DC area, you can volunteer to come and help out and get in for free. And that goes for anyone, you know, anyone young or old can volunteer and get in for free, but we're putting that message out specifically for, for those slightly older generations as a way for them to help this movement in, in, the, way, in the way that they can. So what exactly is this thing? What's going to be happening? Well, you know, I'm not I'm not privy to all of the inside information, and and frankly, not everything has been decided about what's going to happen. But just for instance, we can take from the 2007 event and and say that there will be speakers, excellent speakers, really really inspirational people come up. Uh, if you haven't heard of Van Jones right now you will have heard of him very soon. He's um, an amazing speaker on issues of climate change, but mostly energy justice and green jobs, but, you know, and green jobs being blue collar jobs that are good for the environment, but not just green jobs in general, but green jobs specifically for the people who need it the most, bringing people out of poverty teaching them these new skills to help make our country a better place in terms of the energy we use. So Van Jones will definitely be there. He was at PowerShift 2007, was amazing. Congressman Markey also came, did an excellent job speaking, uh, very passionate on these issues. And Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi was there last year. So that's just a little taste of the types of speakers they were able to attract last year. Last year we had uh, our goal was about 6,000 students to come. This year the goal is 10,000. And we had to move the event to a bigger facility, so we're, we're going to be at the Washington, D.C. Convention Center this time. It's going to be a huge event, just massive numbers of people, and, and I imagine that there's going to be some really great talent out there to come and speak to the, to the crowds who show up. So there will be speakers, there will be music, entertainment, and then all sorts of great educational things that go along with conferences, workshops, speaker panels, things like that. And this goes on for a couple of days and it all culminates on what will be the nation's biggest single lobby day on the issues of climate change and clean energy. 
there will be a rally on the lawn of the Capitol, in front of the Capitol, and from there, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people will be going to their representatives in Congress to talk to them about the importance of clean energy. And, you know, it's, it's going to be amazing. All these people coming from their hometowns, you know, they're not professional lobbyists. They don't know how all, all of this works. But at this conference, there will be trainings and uh, group sessions that help prepare these people to go and speak to their congressmen. And then when they go, they actually go in a large group. So it's, you know, it's very inclusive uh, and, you know, everyone's very supportive. So there's no, there's no need to be nervous going to do this. Like, this is how democracy is supposed to work. And, and that's what PowerShift is all about. So obviously, I encourage anyone and everyone who's listening to look into this. And if you can make it, come. The event starts on February 27th and runs through March 2nd. Just about all of the information you can possibly want is at powershift09.org. But if you have any questions, anything that you can't find on the website, uh, and you know, if you just want uh, someone to ask a question to on like a more personal level, please feel free to send me an email, and I will either know about the event and, and know the answer to your question, or I know the people more closely involved with organizing the event, and I can absolutely set you up with the people you need to be talking to to get your question answered. They give all kinds of amazing support over there. Um, they're helping people find places to stay in the city. They're helping to give uh, scholarship money to help pay for travel expenses for anyone who wants to come but can't afford it. It's a really amazing organization who's putting this on. It's the Energy Action Coalition. It's a coalition of lots of different uh, smaller organizations who come together to put their collective force behind programs like this and really I, my sense of it is that this is going to be a historic event and es essentially this is the embodiment of what Obama asked us to do. When he was elected he made it very clear to say this isn't the time to relax, this isn't the time to sit back and just let the government do its thing. The grassroots pressure has to continue and you have to keep fighting for what you want and he needs our help to get past the things that need to get past. Just, just because he's in favor of it, if he can't prove that that's what the people are demanding, then he doesn't have the, the adequate political power to push things through necessarily. And so he's asked for our help in that and keeping on grassroots pressure, and that's exactly what this is. So if you have any interest in coming, you owe it to yourself to at least check this out and see if you can make it. And again, if you have any questions, shoot me an email at j at bestofleft.com and I will get you set up with any information you need to help you decide if you can make it. So that's it for today. Coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the border and conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you from bestoftheleft.com. Bought a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only 